This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. I want to say a special welcome to those of you that are here from the youth event this weekend, the Silver Ring thing. You were witnesses and testimonials of what God has done in your life and um, very much uh, appreciate your ministry uh, to our community here and we'll pray God's blessing on you as you go forward. If you were here last Sunday and you heard Pastor Steve, I hope you were encouraged by that and by the reality of his coming and we're grateful and having heard him, now you know how to pray for him and for his family and, uh, and again just a reminder that we're inviting them to come here and be one of us. And yes, he's going to minister to us deeply. Uh, But we don't want to make him the superstar. We're very excited about his coming, but we want him to come and be one of us. Well, as Dan said at the beginning, we're in a series called How to Share Jesus Without Freaking Out. And this morning, I I said a couple weeks ago that these last two weeks of our series, we want to be very, very practical. And that's what I want to do this morning. And and you'll understand why I'm going to go where I'm going to go with some questions that I'm going to ask you when we get to the end and how this fits in with the way that you're going, that you might share your faith with others. So I want to begin with a question. And my question is, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Now, we are, we tend to be a well-educated, well-informed congregation. And so my guess is that you do have a sense of who you are. But this morning, I'm going to kind of do a, a simple um, kind of a rehearsal or, or kind of a um, review of some things that, that really foundationally shape who we are. And um, I think it's important for us to know who we are, and I know this from Psalm 139. And if you know that psalm, you know that in that psalm, David uh, spends most of the psalm telling us how much God hears us. He knows every word in our mouth before we even say them, that he sees us. It says he knows uh, our comings and our goings. He puts his hand behind and before. It says he knit us together in our mother's womb. He knew every day of our life before one of them came to be. He says he, he sees us, he hears us, he knows us. There's nowhere we can go and not be in his presence. So this entire psalm is given to this idea that God knows us intimately. He knows all about us. And then David gets to the very end of the psalm. And in verse 23, he says this. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. And I'll never forget the first time that I read that and thought to myself, wait, 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 hold everything, David. You just spent an entire psalm convincing us that God knows everything about us. And now you're asking God to search you and know your heart? What, what gives? Until I realized, clearly, David has proven that God already knew his heart. David is praying this prayer, not because God needs to know David, but because David needs to know David. And so he's asking God to show him who he is. So I think God wants us to know who we are. Not only does God want us to know who we are, but he wants us to embrace who we are, to lean into it. Some of us know who we are, and we don't like ourselves very much. 
You know, we're not sure that we like the way that God knit us together in our mother's womb. But God invites us to know and to embrace his creation design in us. Now, in our modern world today, we have a number of tools that help us with this. So I know many of you are very um, well acquainted with things like the Myers-Briggs. Um, and, and maybe you've used it in your workplace or in education. Or, so you have a, even a greater breadth of understanding than uh, the little review I'm going to do this morning on a couple of these pieces. Um, or maybe like me, I grew up using a tool called the DISC, D-I-S-C. Again, another temperament personality assessment that helps you know kind of how you're wired up, how you lean. Uh, one that's out now that's being used a lot is called the Enneagram. And some of you may have seen that or taken that. Again, all of these are tools to help us understand ourselves. Now, it's important for you to understand that if you take a Myers-Briggs or a DISC or whatever it is, and you come out with a certain pattern, and the person sitting next to you has that exact same pattern, the two of you are not alike. Because you grew up in a different home, a different family of origin. Uh, you, you have different life experiences. You're at a different stage in life. So even though we use these kinds of tools to kind of assess human personality, the reality is we are all unique. But I think it's important for us when we begin to think about evangelism to also think about who we are. So let me do a couple of, we actually use three scales in our divine design, extrovert, introvert, thinker, feeler, and routine and variety. I want to take two of those this morning and just do a brief review of what it means to be extrovert, introvert, and thinker, feeler, and then you'll In a little while, I'll tell you why this is important to evangelism. Okay, so let's start with introverts and extroverts. Um, And by the way, we are all some combination of these. And I think we can shift throughout our lifetime. Um, I'm an extrovert, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But I've learned that over the years, I have picked up a lot of the characteristics of introversion, not because I'm by wiring an introvert, but because, for instance, I've learned to love solitude and not just, you know, socialization time. So we're all a unique combination of both of these things. Um, And I want to say something now to those of you who are introverts, because introverts have long been misunderstood. And I believe that our North American political, business, social structures have always favored extroverts. We prefer extroverted leaders, we prefer extroverted politicians and extroverted uh, bosses. Introverts, you know, have really gotten a bad rap in modern days. Um, And so I want you to know if you're an, I want you to understand that introverts, being an introvert does not mean that you do not love people. In fact, I would venture to say that some introverts have a deeper compassion and passion for people than extroverts. Being an introvert does not mean that you don't feel deep passion or have leadership or teaching or even public speaking skills. So being an introvert does not mean uh, that you don't have a whole lot to share with the world. Extroverts do not have a corner on that. So let's take a look, if we can, at a couple of um, and, and these scales are primarily based on Myers and Briggs. Let's look at the um, key words associated with each preference, with an extroversion preference or an introversion preference, okay? So notice that the first one says active 
extroverts are active, introverts are reflective. Now, what I want you to understand is we're talking about a person's relational world. We're not talking about level of physical activity. Active and extrovert being active doesn't mean necessarily that they're physically active, but their relational world is very active. Whereas for an introvert, their relational world is more reflective. They might watch more, observe more. Uh, Sometimes that can feel like they're standing back more, but that's just the way that they're wired. The next one, I love it. It says that introverts are more quiet and extroverts are more hearty. I think that's just a nicer way of saying they're uh, loud. (laughs) Basically what we're talking about there, quiet and a, a bit more verbal, vocal, you know. I don't know how I feel about that word, but anyway. Um, Notice that an introvert finds it easier to focus themselves, to kind of focus themselves, whereas extroverts tend to uh, like variety. We often think of extroverts as people that can multitask easier. The reality is that studies are showing that none of us multitask very well, but if someone's going to pull it off, it's probably going to be an extrovert, okay? Then notice that it says that an extrovert is oriented towards their outer world, while an introvert is more oriented towards their inner world. Now, it's important to understand that extroverts get a pass on knowing about their inner world. They do not. They need to know about their inner world as well. But when they're thinking about their relational world, they'll tend to think outside themselves, whereas introverts tend to have a better sense of what's happening internally. Now, again, introverts don't get a pass on their outer world. They need to be aware of that as well. But it's just how they are each oriented naturally. Okay? So extroverts are more expressive and introverts are more measured. So extroverts, uh, if Peter, if we could take the apostles, I would assume that Peter is an extrovert. And therefore, occasionally, he kind of had foot-in-mouth disease. He would say things uh, that he probably shouldn't have said. He probably should have thought first before he, uh, you know, uh, told Jesus, oh, no, that won't happen after Jesus is trying to tell him, yes, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. Um, And John, the apostle John, was probably a bit more introverted. And he tended to think first and to think deeply. He was a little quieter. Um, extroverts speak and talk at, or think and talk at the same time. In fact, when they're talking, they're actually thinking out loud. So you're getting the train of thought in their mind. Have you ever had an extroverted boss who would walk around the office and say, uh, would think out loud and everyone is thinking, this is what we're going to do? Uh-uh. No, it's not what you're going to do. He's just thinking out loud. The next day it'll all change, Right. And if you've worked for an extroverted boss, you know that that's what happens. Now, I know if you're an extrovert here, this is going to come as a really strange thought. But introverts actually think. (laughs) And then they talk. And they're not thinking while they're talking. And then they think. And then they talk. So if you're an extrovert, you're thinking, well, that's crazy. You would just do all that at the same time. It conserves a lot of, you know, space and energy. But that's the way an introvert is wired up. And, and so, so, for instance, for instance, um, Oki Lundberg and I have worked here a long, long time. Oki's actually an extrovert, but on this piece of the scale, 
he is wired up more as an introvert. When we were serving on the same team together, we'd have a team meeting and we'd be talking, and Oki would seldom say anything about something we were discussing or talking about in the meeting. But I learned, because extroverts are external processors, introverts are internal processors. So I learned to wait 24 to 36 hours, and then I would go into Oki's office and I would say, hey, was just wondering, that meeting the other day and we were talking about so-and-so, do you have any thoughts? And he'd say, yes, actually I do. I've been thinking about that. And here's what I think. And I would get really rich thoughts and ideas, and, but I had to give him time to process, okay? And then last, extroverts tend to be more social, they are the people who are going to feel more comfortable in, uh, in an event where there's a lot of people, perhaps a lot more noise or energy, um, and, and extra, or introverts prefer solitude. Now, that doesn't mean an introvert doesn't like to go to a concert, and it doesn't mean extroverts don't need to learn to be alone for a while. In fact, they do. This is really all about how you get energy. Extroverts tend to be getting energy, getting filled up when they're with people. And introverts need time alone to refuel. It's about how you get energy. And it's, that's an important distinction because, again, an introvert might love people sometimes far more deeply than an extrovert, but in order to refuel, they need time alone. Now, as I said, I'm an extrovert, But the reality is I've learned the value of solitude. And now that's very much a part of my life. Um, But I used to say to people that you don't, because I knew I was an extrovert, you don't want to leave me alone for too long because I'll just kind of, you know, decompress or completely kind of just be a pile. I need people to be energized. So, for instance, I do far better throughout a day that's packed with clients as a therapist than some of my introverted colleagues who are going to need a little bit more space in their schedule. Doesn't mean I'm not tired at the end of the day. Doesn't mean that, but I can handle people interaction for over a longer period of time than some people can. But again, this is not, don't make any judgments. This is not about one being better than the other, particularly in the body of Christ. We want to equally value. Churches, by the way, are often set up to meet the needs of extroverts. Sign up for this, sign up for that. One of the things that we've learned here at Sunset is that some people won't sign up. They need someone to come and have a conversation with them about what they would like to do, how they would like to get involved. They need to be invited in. That doesn't mean they're always an introvert, but I think sometimes we have to think about this in the church. Okay, again, I'll tell you why this is important to evangelism in just a moment. Let's go on to the next one, thinkers and feelers. Again, don't place any judgment on these two categories. Thinkers do have feelings. It's important to understand. And feelers do think, okay? So be careful that you, you know, go too far one way or the other. So let's look at the words, keywords that are associated with these two. Thinkers tend to use logic over values. And again, it's not that they don't have values, but they're going to use logic first. Feelers are going to think about values first over logic. It's not that they can't be logical, but they're just going to value one over the other. 
Thinkers tend to be more objective. If you need a a physical problem solved, you want a thinker. You want a thinker that can figure that out. Um, Sometimes uh, physical projects, like stuff around my house, I think, I have no idea how to do this. I'm just lost. And then I go somewhere and someone shows me that there's actually stuff that allows you to do this really easy. But my idea of how it was going to get done was really, really complicated. I just don't have a mind that thinks that way. And um, so thinkers are objective. Feelers are going to think personally about themselves and about other people. Um, <clears throat> thinkers are, uh, are going to be more frank. They're, they tend to be uh, realistic. They're going to say things, again, quickly and just as it is. Whereas feelers are going to think, how is this going to impact the other people who are here in the room? One of the great things about having both thinkers and feelers on committees and ministry teams and even elder boards and pastoral staffs and staffs and all of that is that, that <clears throat> thinkers are thinking about things objectively. They'll often come up with great ideas. And the feelers are saying, how's that going to impact so-and-so? I wonder how they're going to feel about that. I wonder how that's going to impact this group. Are we including this group in the church? So, again, it's wonderful when we have those balances of feelers and thinkers. Um, Thinkers tend to be more justice-oriented. Feelers are going to be more mercy-oriented. Thinkers are going to critique. And often, and, and again, maybe you don't fall all the way down the line. Maybe on one of these, you, you know, you might be a critique person, or you might be a thinker, but you do often encourage and give praise. But feelers understand the value of encouragement and praise. Um, Thinkers are going to be task-oriented. Feelers are going to be people-oriented. And again, there's every variation possible when you begin to combine these kinds of things. But the question is, do you know yourself? Do you know who you are? Do you know how God has wired you? Are you willing to embrace that? Are you willing to lean into that? Say, God, use use my introversion. Use my extroversion. Um, Use these parts of me. Now, by the way, there's uniquenesses around all of these. For instance, I'm an extrovert, but years ago I figured out that I'm what I would call an inhibited extrovert. What this means is I won't stand on the stage unless I have a purpose and a task. So you can't get me up here to do drama. I cannot be anybody but myself. And I have to have a reason to be up here. Then I'm fine. Otherwise, I don't particularly care to be on the stage. I'm probably sitting in the back somewhere. So I've learned this about myself. I'm not going to be the life of the party. You know, I'm not going to dance around with a lampshade on my head. That's not me. But I'm an extrovert. But I'm more inhibited. So there's all kinds of nuances to this. And I want to encourage you to ask God to search your heart and teach you who you are. Okay, second part of the message is another question. Do you know your story? Particularly your God story, but do you know your story? Now what I'm going to do here is I'm going to ask a series of questions. And you might want to write them down and do some thinking about them and figure out how you would answer them because this is all going to roll into the way God uses us in evangelism and in sharing Christ. Okay, first question I want to ask you is, when did you become aware of your need for God? 
When did you become aware of your need for God? And the answer to this question varies from person to person. Alan Mitchell, who heads up our uh, kind of next steps and usher team, came to Christ at 57 as a businessman. And his story is very different than Dan Larson's, who prayed a prayer when he was in kindergarten, but he said he really didn't get it until high school, which is very similar to my own story. And so when did you become aware of your need for God? Now, awareness of need includes an awareness that of our own sin. One of the things I deeply respect about AA is that what, ha- what happens if you go to AA is the very first thing you're asked to do is admit that you are powerless. And most of us walk around thinking we can handle our life. We don't live with a deep need of our need for God or a deep knowledge of our need for God because we can handle things pretty well. It actually works against us sometimes. And at AA, every time you go, you admit that you're powerless. Second, you come to believe that a power greater than yourself can save you. And this is what has to happen. This, this happens at some point in our life. If we've become followers of Christ, somewhere along the line, we realize, I need something. I can't save myself. I need something. Because of my sin, I can't reach God. And, of course, that's when God offers his son, Jesus Christ. He says, I've taken care of that sin, and, and it's, you've been washed clean. You're okay. I'll accept you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. And, in fact, the third step of AA is made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to God. Really, it's salvation, isn't it, in a lot of ways? So when did you become aware of your need for God. And what were the circumstances? What was going on in your life? What were the things that made you aware? For me, I was a freshman in high school and I was beginning to do some kind of existential thinking. I remember at one point, literally writing in a journal, I think that I'm realizing that you can work as hard as you can to be in the right place at the right time, say the right thing to the right person, make, take the right, make the right decision to make right thing, the right thing happen and still not end up happy. And I looked around at my my parents and other adults, and I thought, I think this is not probably how they wanted their life to turn out. So what guarantee is there of happiness? And I began to realize that I probably, it wasn't in my power to make myself happy or satisfied or feel fulfilled. And that began to fuel a search for how God fit into that. So that's question one. Question two, who shared with you and what did they share that made you realize that you needed God? Who shared with you and what did they share? For me, it was a a young man named Dennis Olcom, who's now Presbyterian minister. And uh, I was in a youth group at my church and we were visiting some Uh, students who had visited our church with their parents but didn't come to our youth group. We had a summer camp coming up, and we were kind of just going around giving them information about the summer camp. This is before social media. And uh, so you couldn't just push it out that way. So we were actually going to their homes, and I went into this one home with Dennis, and I was supposed to be the prayer support. And at the end of talking about the camp, Dennis asked this young woman if he could tell her a little bit about his God story, a little bit about his relationship with God. And she said yes, but I could tell she was not particularly interested, really. 
And I was supposed to be praying as Dennis shared, but instead I was listening to Dennis' story. And I realized as I listened to him that I didn't know God the way he knew God. And so when we got back out in the car with our other friends that were there with us, I said to them, you guys, I don't think I'm a Christian. And a girl in the back seat said, Barbara, of course you are. You're the youth group secretary. <laughs> I'm not sure what that had to do with being a Christian. but. And then I said what I had thought, listening to Dennis. All I know is I don't know God the way Dennis knows God. And for me, that was the point where I realized I want to know God. I want to know God. I want to know Jesus. I want to know what this whole thing is all about. So who shared with you and what did they share? Third question, was there an event that marks the beginning of your relationship with God or did it happen over time? It used to be that we had this belief, and we kind of talked about this earlier in this series, that all you had to do was get someone to pray a prayer and that was it, they're in. I don't think that's that simple. I don't see that anywhere in the pages of scripture. Oh, I think there's a moment when you have to talk to God about your need for God and your desire to know him, understand what Christ did. But for many of us, that happens over a period of time. It really does. I was talking with Brad Schleif about the event this weekend. He said 22 students indicated that they'd taken a step. Perhaps it was a step where they placed their faith in Christ. I don't, we don't know for sure, but it was a step. And that could be the beginning of a number of steps that bring them to a place where, yes, I know for sure. Kind of like Dan Larson. I prayed a prayer, but now I know for sure that I belong to Christ, that I belong to God, that I'm part of his family. So was it a, was it a one-time event that you can point to, or did it happen over a period of time? And how did that happen? Question number four. And I think this is as important, this part of your story is as important as when you came to Christ. And that is what have been the turning points in your God story? What have been the turning points in your God story? I grew up in a Christian home. I'm sure I went forward in VBS, but I didn't really come to Christ until that night after listening to Dennis, going into my bedroom, getting down on my knees and crying because I thought I knew God and saying, God, I thought I knew you, but apparently I don't think I do. And I don't, I thought I accepted Christ, but I want to know you. And that began uh, a journey, a journey. After high school, I got involved in youth ministry. And then in 1976, I moved here to Portland to, again, work in youth ministry at a church just down the road, Village Baptist, and, <clears throat> and was there and was so excited about what God was doing. And a year later, the whole thing kind of imploded. The position didn't come about. And I felt like God literally picked me up and threw me back into California. And I was not a happy camper. And uh, I was struggling, and I had to get a job. And so my apologies to those of you who are dental assistants, but someone got me a job as a dental assistant. This is before you had to get training. They just kind of trained on the job. I hated it. It was not what I had wanted to do with my life. And uh, I hate the dentist. So, I mean, you know, I was like, this was not a good work environment for me. But by the way, God used it amazingly. I ended up getting the chance to share my faith with a Jewish dentist. Who knew? So, you know... He wanted to know. He asked me questions. I didn't even initiate this. So God can use those seasons of your life. But as I would drive across Sacramento from my house to the dentist office where I worked, um, I would just struggle with my faith and with where I was. And one morning I found myself singing a hymn on the way to work. 
Be thou my vision, the Lord of my heart. I mean, just those words so spoke to me. And I realized that even in this place I didn't want to be, God was at work in my life. Um, I came back again in 1979. This time it stuck. Stayed in Oregon. And, um, and there have been a number of different transitions. A painful move out of youth ministry into adult ministry. And I, I don't want to tell you all that you're boring, but I would have preferred to stay in youth ministry. It's a lot more fun. Um, but that wasn't God's plan for me. So again, I went kicking and screaming, but he transitioned me and went with me on that. There have been some painful ministry transitions. I remember when I finished my doctorate in ministry at Gordon-Conwell and flew back for graduation. It was a very tumultuous time here at Sunset. I didn't know what the future held. Um, I wasn't even sure why I had done this degree in some ways. And so here I sit. It was not easy. Uh, I, I don't get along well with doctoral theses. And here I sat at graduation. I still wondered why they gave me the degree. Are you all sure? Because I don't think you should have done that. But anyway, but they said I, was, I did it. So here I am at graduation. And the whole three hours that morning for all of us who were graduating with this woman, registrar. Think of Roz in Monsters, Inc. You know what I'm talking about? That's... She had been drill sergeanting in us all morning long. We were kind of done with it. We wanted to get on to the graduation. And she comes to the very end and she says, well, there's one more thing we're going to do. And she got out an overhead projector. And she said, we're going to sing a hymn. Be thou my vision. And I sat there with tears streaming down my face, hoping it wouldn't completely wreck my makeup. Because I realized God had been with me on that journey. He had been with me when my husband left me through a failed marriage. He had been with me all that time. What have been the turning points in your God story? Because you have them. Okay. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Why is this all important right now? Because your most powerful evangelism tool is you and your story. I can't give you a tract. I can't give you a strategy. I can't give you a methodology better than you and your story. This is what God is going to use to share the love of God with other people. He's going to use you whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, and he's going to do it in line with who you are. And he's going to use your story. And by the way, the other best tool is listening to other people's stories, but I'm going to leave that for Mike next week. Let's pray. Father, you have uniquely wired each one of us And you have been working all through our lives, regardless of our age. And you are going to use all of that to share your love with other people. God, I'll be honest, I don't understand why you use us. Why don't you just beam something down? But you don't. You choose to use us to share your love with others. And we invite you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go into a time of prayer and healing. We do this about once a month here at Sunset, and I just want to remind you a little bit about why we do this. 
We believe that God heals in one of three ways. We know that God can heal instantly if he so chooses. And Pastor Steve talked about that last week. We don't see that so much in North America, but that does happen, has happened, happens around the world. God can heal instantly. But God also heals through what we would call intervention. And Pastor Steve talked about that as well. He said that sometimes God chooses to heal slowly. He heals through doctors and nurses and treatment plans and counselors um, and pastors and friends as we walk alongside people on a healing journey. And so God can heal. That's a slow healing. Steve said that sometimes that's the greater blessing. And then also we believe that sometimes God doesn't heal through instantly or through intervention, but he heals through intervention, kind of like the Apostle Paul who asked God to heal him externally, whatever this thorn in his flesh was. And God said, no, I'm going to do an inside work, Paul, and my power is going to be made real in your weakness. So sometimes God doesn't heal externally, but he heals internally. He does a work that glorifies him in us. It could not be done any other way. So we want to invite you. I want to invite those of you who are elders and uh, and have uh, gifts of prayer and intercession to come down front, to sit in the chairs across the front here. And then as we worship, we want to invite you to come and sit with someone and bring whatever need God has laid on your heart today uh, and pray with them as we close our service in worship. love about ending with that song is it tells us that while God uses us and he uses our who we are and our story it is the overwhelming reckless love of God that pursues people so know that while he involves you he is the one whose love reaches people and brings them into relationship with Christ and so today know who you are know your story get acquainted with that And then know that God is going to use that to share his love with others. Go in peace.